Alrighty, good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to the class on a culture of evangelism and hospitality, which is one of the core values here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, this is week four, which is going to be sort of the last of the focus on the culture of evangelism segment. And then we'll spend the next one or two weeks looking at a culture of hospitality a little bit. And I thought uh, as we get into it, we do uh, a quick recap. Today is going to be uh, a bit of a new topic, but then also somewhat of a summary of the rest and try to how do we synthesize this all together into a sort of model in our minds of what a uh, gospel proclaiming evangelistic life might look like. So let's ask the Lord's help as uh, we look to this together. Heavenly Father, we bless your name, and we thank you that you have not stayed silent, that you are not hidden, but that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, through your prophets, but especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would ever have ears to hear him, and that as we hear and learn of him, that we would speak of him and become like him. Uh, Help us as we look to uh, these concepts, and as we seek to be people that love to proclaim the good news. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so we're considering a culture of evangelism and hospitality, and we looked week one at the idea of public evangelism. And the big idea there was that we want to have a culture of invitation, that the, it's the proclaimed gospel in the public gatherings that has a particular power to save. And so simply, we want to be people that readily invite others to church. Uh, Week two, we looked at then personal evangelism, and we saw that in all the texts in the New Testament that discuss how we speak with unbelievers, they assume a dialogue, a conversation, a back and forth, where we can together get to the heart of the matter. Thirdly, we consider a culture of witness, and that in witnessing, uh, we want to be looking at a culture of holiness and helpfulness that both are consecration and purity of life, and then also the way we help and show mercy in this world, uh, witnesses and speaks well of Christ to others. And then fourthly, if we could see that, week four, we are looking at today, actually, it's a surprise. I didn't put that up there. That's what we're looking at today, um, friendship, friendliness, things like that. Uh, But before we get there, I want us to look at a diagram of this model. So let's scroll down there, Angel. And I was very proud. I made this diagram all by myself with my uh, line and art skills. Okay, I think you can see that well enough. The the one on the bottom says invitation. And so this is, in my mind, how these three weeks are working together. Okay, so you consider we have our lives and we have the church. And we want, through participation in the church community, through relationship with ourselves, we want people to be moving closer to God. And we want them to cross into that line of relationship to God, to get up that triangle and know God themselves personally. Now, people move often closer to God the more they are engaged and participating in the church community. And it should be that the closer they're getting to us, the more we're getting to know each other, dialoguing and conversing, the more they should be getting to know about God, the more attractive God should seem. And we want to see them come into that relationship with God. And so... First, if we consider the you there, ourselves, wanting to live a consecrated and considerate life, or a holy and helpful life, a life where in and of itself it witnesses of something good, of something attractive and beautiful. If people find our lives attractive, then we ought to be able to begin conversations, begin friendships. 
And as we converse, we should be getting more and more into deeper things, to the heart of the matter, and in a sense, getting them closer to us and closer to the God we love. And the further we go up in our personal relationship, usually the easier it is to pull them sideways across that line into church. People most readily attend church when invited by someone they're friends with, someone they're close with. You can invite someone with whom you have very little relationship, but there's a larger gap for them to actually jump into the church, right? So anywhere on that line where you're getting closer, it's much easier to invite them into church at that point. Once in church, and they're part of that preaching community, that worshiping community, the consistent gospel heard, the proclamations, the prayers, they ought to be growing in understanding faith and repentance till that point where truly their heart is converted and they come to know God. So that's the way I sort of think of this. So if, conversion, if we work backwards, conversions largely happen through preaching. Preaching is largely experienced through invitations. Invitations are largely accepted in the context of friendships and relationships. Relationships grow through dialogue and conversation. And conversations or conversation partners are desirable when they seem to be the type of people you'd actually want to talk to. Okay, so that's where we're getting to. But before all that, we've been kind of working backwards each week. In order to even get to this place where you're getting to know people, having conversations, you actually need to be present where they are, where you might actually meet them. And then you need to learn to engage in some sort of connection, some sort of friendship. So we're looking at these two concepts today, the concepts of presence and the concepts of friendliness, uh, which are things we might not often think of when we think of an evangelistic life. So presence. Uh, it goes without saying that reaching out to unbelievers requires being around unbelievers. Now, some people have, uh, just around them, unbelieving friends and family, might have unbelieving co-workers, but some of us might not. Some of us, just the nature of our work perhaps, doesn't engage with many other people. Maybe all our family, the friends we grew up with are saved. And so we think, oh, is this bad? What should we do? And there's no positive command in the New Testament that says you have to go make a friend with an unbeliever, that you feel, need to feel like you're being guilted into this. I remember when I was a teenager, this youth leader used to always tell me, he's like, Jace, if you haven't made a friend with an unbeliever at school this week, like, basically you're in sin. And I felt so guilty. I'm like, these kids just don't like me. Like, I'm not uh, cool enough for them or bad enough for them or something. I don't know. Um, and so we don't want to feel guilt on this. And when we're thinking, how should we think about developing relationships with unbelievers? We want to stay away from a mindset that thinks, well, I need to do that because I need to evangelize them because they need me. If you're seeking to cultivate relationships for the really only express purpose of evangelizing, you're basically starting a friendship on a basis of um, an agenda, a potentially even manipulative agenda, akin, though of course it's uh, different in quality. But when someone, like we've said before, invites you over, you think they just want to be your friend, but they just want to sell you on a multi-level marketing scheme, sell, sell you some berry juice or something. And of course, we desire people to come to salvation, but you cannot have a true foundation of mutual friendship if you're only in it to accomplish one specific task that you want with the goal of then exiting after you've accomplished that. And if you have that mindset that, okay, I'm going to you know, join this group or go to this place in order just to do this, I don't think you're going to be very successful. But what we want to recognize is that people, unbelievers, they have stuff to give us as well. 
and they are valuable and worthwhile in the sense that they bear God's image, and there's much they can add to our lives that is good. And so perhaps if we flipped our mindset to thinking, instead of they need me, perhaps I need them more than I would have thought. Perhaps they actually have much that can add to my life, and that could be valuable. And I think perhaps more often, these sorts of relationships can be healthier for us. And if we're wanting to go to places and areas where we can rub shoulders with unbelievers, get to know them, I think we'll often receive much from that, and it's healthy. So not to say that you need to go out and try to join a club or a group in order so that you can do your evangelistic duty, but rather, if you don't have any sorts of connections or friendships with unbelievers, you might be lacking some sort of health in your own life, and you would really benefit from those sorts of relationships. And here's just two ways I think that we benefit. Two reminders when we spend time with unbelievers is we're reminded both of how different we are and how similar we are. And both of these are valuable. Being reminded of how different we are, it's easy to forget, in a sense, how weird these things sound that we believe. That we believe that God created this world, that he's actually there, he actually hears our prayers, there really is sin, there really is an afterlife. And to just step back and be like, wow, I've actually been brought into this faith that is not something assumed that everybody knows. This is, like, to people, this sounds really wild. And to be reminded also that just our values are different. The way we value money, the way we um, value our purity and marriages. And to be reminded of, wow, I've been called to a really different way of life and God has been so gracious to me. So being reminded of that antithesis, that difference, is helpful. But so is being reminded of our similarities. When we don't have relationships, it's easy to boogeyman people and just think they're all pure evil and um, darkness. But to realize the image of God is still in them, though defiled and defaced, and because of God's common goodness, by which he still has endowed people with many great creative virtues, you can realize that, oh, this person is trying to love their spouse too. This person's trying to be self-controlled and pursue a life that is good. Perhaps this person is actually really seeking to do good to others and make an impact in this world. And it's help, helpful at times to realize actually how many similarities we have. And so I think for both these reasons, it's good to desire to develop relationships with unbelievers. And now practically, how might you do that? Well, it's usually, it's probably not going to happen just... Um, chatting up the same barista every day, though that's usually what's in like, the examples of the evangelistic pamphlets. But it's probably going to be the way most friendships develop through consistent connections and mutual interests, whether hobbies or clubs, uh, regular meetups. And there's plenty of those sorts of things that we can get involved with. There's walking clubs. There are sports teams. There are uh, pottery groups, there are game groups, there are all sorts, you know, if you just look on Facebook events or on Meetup, you'll see, oh, there's a bunch of people that want to go foraging this Saturday, right, where they just go into the woods and find food to eat from the plants. You can become a forager, get to know some people who are into foraging. And really, this can be based around our interests, you have a natural connection, and it's a great way to get to know people. Actually, dog parks are really good as well. You have that natural um, connection of you both like your dogs. The dogs are running around and you're just standing. Easy to strike up a conversation. Um, I was talking to a friend a couple days ago and she was saying just going to the park in the middle of the day when all the other moms with their kids are there um, 
And if you can get people away from their phones and just start talking, it's a great time to make connections. So presence. We want to be present where people are, not out of a sense of guilt, but in many ways because it's healthy and good for us. And so if we are present, we get that presence piece down. The big thing here is how can we be people that are truly friendly? I remember that was my big takeaway when, um, oh, oh man, I forget his name. Uh, the pastor from Florida that talked about evangelism here. Someone help me out. How, Hausler. Eric Hausler. Um, my big takeaway is that he's just a remarkably friendly person. And friendliness doesn't necessarily come naturally to all of us. But clearly, friendliness is a really wonderful art and quality to have by which we make connections in this world. So I want us to think about friendship for a little bit and friendliness. So what is a friend? Okay, Angel, let's scroll down to the next section there. Okay, we're looking at what is a friend. Okay, so first, a friend is someone you call on in the good times. Okay, Jesus told the parable of the guy who lost the sheep and actually says the similar thing with the woman who lost the coin. Um, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Or, And the woman says, Come, rejoice with me, I've found the coin. And notice they call their friends to come rejoice with them. Friends are people with whom you would want to call on to come rejoice with you when things are good. Um, People have actually said, differently than you might expect, you'll get more people coming to you when you're in a hard time with sympathy uh, because there's actually something to gain in feeling like you're being a sympathetic person. But you actually almost more truly know who your friends are by who's going to come and proactively rejoice with you and be excited for you when things are good because they have, in a sense, less to personally gain from that. But, you know, rejoicing, fun, laughter, making those memories are such a good foundation for friendship. Shared joys really promote relationships, whether it's a shared interest, like we both love the same sports team, or just we both really enjoy talking to each other. A joy is foundational. Secondly, let's look at point two. A friend is not just someone you call on in the good times, but also someone you call on in the bad times. Proverbs 17, 7 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So all times, the good times and the bad, and like a sibling, even being there in adversity. A friend's committed to the good of the other person in love. And when someone's with you in the bad times, it shows that they're not just committed to you when things are going well, and just for what you can give to them in mutual enjoyment, but they're actually there for who you are as a person. And if you feel like you're in a relationship where you don't really have permission to be sad or express your hardships, uh, that's, you know, a fair-weather friend. And if, people would, if you would feel like you'd be a killjoy, those people are probably fair-weather friends. Uh, right? Think of the prodigal son, who, when he was partying with everybody, they were his friends. But as soon as he was too poor to party, to buy drinks for everybody, they kind of all left him. They were not there in the bad times, only the good times. Whereas, think, Job's friends stayed by his side for weeks on end, comforting him in his sorrows and afflictions. Point three, let's take a look at that. A friend is also someone you call on in uncertain times. A friend, or oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. 
And so if you have a friend that wants to seek your good, this is a friend that wants to give you good advice. And if they're going to give you good advice, that means they need to know what your situation is, which means they also need to be a good listener. And so this means that there's going to be good conversation and dialogue. You can express what you're going through. They listen and respond wisely. And then they can express what they're going through. You listen. You respond wisely. You work through and process issues together. Uh, this is what Julie and her sisters, this is the word they use all the time. We just need to process it together. It's like we just need to talk and process what's going on together. Processing together. It's a part of friendship. And truly, closeness in relationships only really comes through conversation. So there's a great foundation in having fun together and going through experiences together. But you can have played tennis with the same person for years, and if you've never actually had a conversation apart from the game, you realize you don't know each other at all. There's not real closeness in that relationship. So you need to have that conversational element. Closeness comes through conversation, and often in the context of cooperative activities. So let's uh, scroll down and see the uh, summary here. Is that a friend is someone with whom you can laugh, lament, and listen. That was the uh, pastoral alliteration coming out there. You can laugh with a friend, lament with a friend, and listen. Uh, wonderful foundations for friendship. And so if we want to be these sorts of friends that can be with people in the good times, the bad times, the uncertain times, uh, we have to learn to be friendly. Proverbs 18.24 says that a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Right? It makes intuitive sense. If you want to be a, have friends, you need to be a friendly person. And so who is a friendly person? If this is what friendship, what would friendliness leading to friendship looks like? Okay, let's scroll down and look at that. Okay, three things. A friendly person is going to be an inviter, right? If you want to, people to come rejoice with you, you're inviting them. You're saying, hey, come have dinner with me. Hey, come over to my house. Hey, come, let's play some board games. Hey, let's go on a hike. Hey, let's do this. Join this. A friend is going to be someone who's inviting people with them. You come with me. But then secondly, a friend is going to be a helper, someone that also says, I'll come to you. Not only when you've asked me for help, it says, hey, can I come and help you uh, clean up or pack up for you moving? Hey, can I come and uh, watch the kids for you while you go out? Hey, can I come and just sit with you for whatever you're going through? An inviter, a helper, and thirdly, a dialoguer. The one that will bring up the tough conversation. The one that will open the dialogue with that incisive question to get to the heart. Hey, let's talk about that. You know, don't you love that person who after church at the back, when you're just kind of talking about whatever, and everyone's like, shouldn't we really talk about something deeper? And you, everyone wants to, but no one brings it up. And that one person's like, hey, I was really impacted in the sermon about this. Uh, you know, how about you? Something like that. And you're like, sweet, we're now in it. We're now in the real conversation. But someone had to take initiative to get there. Uh, a, a friendly person is someone that initiates the dialogue. And so the common quality in each of these three categories of friendliness is that friendly people are initiators. And this was my big takeaway as I was really thinking about this, is that friendly people always take the initiative. They take the initiative to invite they take the initiative to offer help. They take the initiative to start the conversation. And that's what a friendly person does. And if you think about people that you think of as friendly, they come up and just start a conversation with you. They'll invite you over. They'll invite themselves over. 
And these qualities all share this idea of initiative. So let's scroll down, and I, I found a, um, a sociological definition of initiative that um, I really liked. Let's keep, keep, keep going. Okay, so initiative is assumption of control of a culturally defined interaction, right, like a conversation or something else, by conducting the initial moves, forcing the other players into respondent rules. Okay, so it's an initiator who makes the first move, right? The, the, the first pawn goes forward on the chessboard, and then the other people are responding. And the thing is, most of us want to be the responder. We love being the responder. We love when someone asks us a question about our lives that we get to answer. We love it when someone else invites us over to their bonfire or to their home. We love it when other people invite help to our lives, because it's much easier to be the responder. Whereas a friendly person is going to more often be that initiator. And the reason it's difficult to be the initiator is because taking initiative and friendliness requires vulnerability. It requires the risk of the person saying, actually, no, like, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. And even though they seem to have a good excuse, you wonder, is it just me that they don't really want to hang out with? Um, the person who, starts the, who initiates the conversation and risks it being awkward, risks no one having anything to say. And so to have this sort of initiative requires a sort of courage, a willingness to take risks for relationships. And so I think one of the primary virtues of friendliness is courageous love. Someone that's willing, for the sake of growing relationships, to risk people saying no, uh, to risk um, awkwardness at times, because you want to see relationships grow. And the reason why, as Christians, we should be able to be friendly is because our sense of self and security doesn't depend on people liking us or saying yes to our invites or thinking we're the coolest person in the church. Our sense of self is already secure in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who walks alongside us. We have our Father's eternal pleasure and approval. So, of course, we can reach out. Uh, what can people do to us? And that's why you'll even notice... Even in a natural sense, the most friendly people are generally the ones that are most secure in their sense of self and self-confident. It doesn't throw them off if someone says they can't make it to lunch today uh, because they are not even thinking on those terms. And we can grow in this because, like I said, we already can have that security and sense of self through Jesus. And so initiative is important. Just think of how many qualities require initiative. Right? What is compassion without initiative? It's just mere sentiment and good intention. What is love for the lost without initiative? Again, it's just mere good intentions, which doesn't do much. What's desire for friendships without initiative? It's implicitly delegating the responsibility for friendship to everyone else. Someone says, well, I haven't been welcomed into the group. I haven't done this. You're saying I've delegated the responsibility for friendship to others. We need to take initiative. Now, you don't have to be a naturally extroverted person uh, to grow in friendliness. Uh, probably most of us do not feel like we're naturally friendly people. It doesn't, there's only a few people that it seems to come really, really naturally for. And so I want us to consider, just as I was reflecting, what would friendliness for the rest of us look like? Right? I like this. Friendliness for the rest of us. And one thing I've found really helpful in a few areas of life, but one thing that I think we can find helpful in this area is this idea of 
uh, a planned, systematic, and structured approach to friendship and friendliness. And what this means is that the more regular your activities, the more consistent your connections with people, the easier it is to become friends. And you might call this, and it's not as bad as it sounds, but the idea of what I'm going to call subscription friendships. Okay? Why is the subscription model so popular for everything? Right? Because Netflix only has to convince you one time to sign up, and then the money comes out of your bank every month. Why do most international child aid organizations do monthly sponsorships of children? Because they only have to convince you that one time when you're in the right zone to sign up, and then you've got it, sponsored. And a reason why we often struggle with developing friendships is because we do it all ad hoc in the moment. Um, I hope the timing is right. I hope I feel right. And we seek to be as skilled as those people that can do it so organically. But if we're not naturally going to just be organic, um, you know, just as we'd love to say, I'm sure I'll just give at every opportunity I have to be charitable, we probably do better with committing a monthly amount to a particular charity. You can set up systems and structures in your life wherein you have consistent, regular contact with people, and the relationships will grow without needing to make that initiative effort every single time. You would only need to take initiative once. So here's some examples. We, we do this at Grace Fellowship for you guys because we know a lot of people need this sort of structure. We have small groups, which is groups of people, same ones, meeting together, um, whether it's every week, every other week. And because you've committed to the group, you start building friendships through those consistent contacts. Uh, we've developed wonderful friendships with the people in our small group. And even for us, that does so much better than thinking, okay, could we have invited this couple over this week, and this couple over the next week, and this couple over midweek? It's much easier to have the consistent structure. Even with the hospitality lunches, we would love to just feel like we can just easily invite people over for lunch every week. But signing yourself up, picking a day and saying, I am going to do it this day, it's going to be with a group of people, committing to it and having that structure just helps us get in the zone. Uh, even in personal relationships, and this might not work in all situations, but uh, we had some friends at church who um, probably a year, more than a year ago, uh, we had them over and they said, hey, what if we got together for dinner every week? And then we went, well, what about every other week? Uh, and we've been getting together regularly, and they just, they just suggested the idea. What if we made this a regular thing? And we've gotten really close. And you can do this with activities. You could say, hey, I'm going to have a, a weekly Saturday morning mom's walking group or whatever. Get some people to commit, and then you've only ever had to initiate once. And so I find that for the rest of us that are not naturally the friendliest people, creating some sort of plan, some sort of regular structure and system to develop friendships and relationships can be really, really helpful. So maybe pick one small thing, you know, set a goal, and go for it. Maybe it's, we're going to commit in our family to um, have people over for lunch, or brunch. Here's a good one, actually. Brunch on a Saturday, we've found to be really successful for having especially families over. Once a month, Saturday brunch, we're going to commit to having people over. Or I'm going to commit to joining a small group. Or I'm going to, every semester when the hospitality lunches come up, I'm going to take one of those slots. Because I want to start building these sorts of relationships into my life. So start small, pick one thing, and go for it. Uh, let's scroll, scroll down to the summary. Okay, 
Perfect. Coming back to putting this all together. So as I've been reading and researching and thinking about these lectures on a culture of evangelism, this really is what I've come down to as the summary of a simple and a hopefully slightly more guilt-free evangelistic methodology, which is simply this. Week one, invite people to church. Week two, have good conversations. Week three, lead a holy and helpful life. Week, week four, be friendly and make friends. And I think there's something here for all of us to start on, to grow in. To be people that invite people to church, that try to have good conversations, deeper conversations. People that intentionally live a holy, consecrated life, a helpful life. And who seek to be friendly, to take the initiative, to invite people, to invite yourself, to begin those conversations, and to make friends in doing that. So if we're looking at what four qualities define a culture of evangelism, it's the qualities of holiness, friendliness, conversation, and invitation. And so if we're going to take this away, to just tuck that in our mind, the witness of holiness, friendliness, having conversations, making invitations. And I think that we'll do well to have a start on this. Uh, we, we do have some good time for questions uh, from either this week or anything else or any comments about um, anything. Really, floors open as we sort of conclude uh, this, these four weeks on culture of evangelism. Feel free. Yeah, Jane. Yeah. Jane was just making the comment that, and I think this is really helpful for us, is that when you live life in a, in a thankful manner where you're very cognizant of all that God has done and is doing for you, it helps us maintain more of an outward focus, right? Because sometimes we're not aware of others because we're just so worried about ourselves, right? How do I feel? Who's talking to me? What's going on with me? And thankfulness to God actually pulls us out of a self-focus and gives us a broader view of the world. Whereas when you're living, when you're just so happy and thankful, it's much easier to talk to people and to even notice them. And so if we cultivated a thankful heart every day, I think we would end up being friendlier people. Yeah, great thoughts, Jane.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, James was even saying how, you know, it's good to remember that we're not responsible for seeing all the results come all at once, but we're planting seeds and hopefully just moving people a little bit closer uh, to the Lord, a little bit closer to knowing him, and that's great. Being just a, even a short interaction with someone that move, nudges them towards the Lord is wonderful, and the results are God's, ultimately. He's the one who turns the hearts anyways. Uh, Daryl. Yeah, so Daryl was just, you know, asking about how do we make sure, how do we make, we make sure we're not, getting, in a sense, getting corrupted in relationships. Um, and actually, it is true that in Scripture, there's probably more warnings about close connections with unbelievers than there are um, positive commands to initiate that. So we legitimately have to um, be cognizant that we're not being pulled along into the world. Um, I remember I went to public high school, and so I remember when I think about this, I just remember my dad's advice that he said to me. He said, JC, you know, I had a couple Christian friends, a couple non-Christian friends by the end of high school, and he said, are you influencing them for good more than they're influencing you for bad? And I just remember thinking, you know, yeah, am I getting dragged down by this relationship, or am I pulling them up? And I find it usually... Not in every case, but in most cases, it really does go by the majority. So generally, if the majority sets the tone and the culture of the group. Um, if there's a majority group, uh, people into corrupting stuff, and you're there, you have very little pull and sway, and um, more often than not get pulled along with what they're doing. Whereas if it's, say, uh, a majority group, pulling one person into that, they're usually going to be brought to good and they'll tone down um, the things that are less savory, which is why I think it's really good as we're making friends with unbelievers, really quickly trying to pull them into the community life of the church, whether encouraging them to come to a Friday night fellowship or a small group. And I think the quicker that we can make our personal friendship become a connection to the church community, the better we'll be. And I do find, you know, one-on-ones is kind of the primary thing I'm thinking and I feel like one-on-ones, there's a good balance usually that there doesn't seem to be a significant pull to try to corrupt, at least in my experience. But you have to know for yourself, right? Is this person very much tempting you to sin and pulling you? Uh, we just have to be self-aware enough to know when that's going on. But yeah, really, really good thought. Yeah, yeah, that was like, yeah, Julie just saying, you know, the benefits of having sort of accountability with someone to be able to pray together and say, hey, like, I'm really um, seeking to develop this friendship and just want the Lord to bless our interactions and that, you know, she, she'd be happy to pray with you too and walk with you in that. Oh, thanks, Julie. 
We have time for probably one or two more. Yeah, Jane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, James just, you know, saying that really, if we can really have that sense that everyone we interact with is an image bearer of God, someone who has dignity, worth, and value in the Lord, uh, let's treat them that way, right? Like, let's not treat them like a worthless thing we can ignore, but someone deserving of respect, whether it's the smallest interaction, like at the cash register. And I'll admit, this is something I'm actually not very good at. I'm very much, I, like, heads down, just do my thing. Uh, and Julie's tried to help me in this because Julie's really, really great at this, my wife. Uh, she's told me before, she used to always have a goal that anyone she interacted with, her goal was always to make them smile. So whether a server or a, a checkout clerk, she's just like, I just love to make them smile, brighten their day, and just be that sort of good influence in their life. And it reminds me actually even a little thing, when Rebecca Van Dudeward was here a couple years ago to talk about hospitality, she talked about seeing each person as, in a sense, a, uh, a vast area to explore. That because people are made in God's image, there's depths and nuances and there's things about them that is our job to sort of mine and explore and uncover. And I found that helpful just thinking of myself with people. It's like, okay, there's something there inside and I want to explore it and figure it out. I want to understand them. And cultivating that sort of curiosity is a very uh, beneficial quality of friendship. Alrighty, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would work in us your kindness, your eyes for the world, that we wouldn't be self-oriented, but be looking for uh, ways to show your love, uh, to be people who love to invite people into our joy, who love to walk with people in their sorrow, who love to speak of the things that matter and value in life. And would you grant us that courageous love that does reach out to people to pull them closer to you? to enfold them into your love that they might know God and trust Christ and walk with the Spirit. Give us your strength. Give us um, everything we need for life and godliness through the Holy Spirit by the merits of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.